We're back in the book of Ephesians. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand. Ushers will be coming forward with Bibles if you need a Bible. And uh, hey, we have a tradition we're starting around here, and that is uh, a declaration of what we believe about the Bible before we study the Bible. So if you have your Bible, stand up. If you don't have your Bible, still stand up. And let's read together what what it says here on the screen. Now, if you don't don't have your Bibles, bring one next week or get one from the ushers if if you want to. And then but if you don't have your Bibles, just raise your hand and declare this as a statement of faith also, okay? So let's raise our, uh, raise our Bibles. Ready, church? And let's say this corporately together, this statement of faith about what we believe about God's Word. You ready, church? Let's read it together. This Bible is the inspired and infallible Word of God. It has the power to train me in righteousness. I will receive God's Word today with humility and respect. My ears are open. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive to God's word. May this time in God's word equip me to love God, love people, and be part of the mission of each one, reach one, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, Amen, church. Amen, amen, amen. So Ephesians chapter 4, we're back in the word of God in the book of Ephesians this morning. And what we're going to be talking about this morning is we're going to be making a transition from the first three chapters of Ephesians, which is all about the wealth that we have in Christ, all the spiritual blessings that we've inherited in Christ, how we're rich in Christ spiritually, how we've been adopted into his family, we've been predestined uh, to be his his chosen people before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, we're accepted in the beloved, how we're saved by grace. Remember Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works. Well, we we started also that we're part of the mysterium, the mystery of Gentile people now becoming a part of God's people, the Jewish people, we've been grafted in. Just some wealth that we've seen in the first three chapters. Now, we're crossing the bridge from wealth, from wealth to walk. And what we're going to see in the next two chapters now, in chapter 4 and 5, that we're to, we're to walk, we're going to see our verse for this morning, verse, first verse, chapter 4, verse 1, walk, walk, church, Christian, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you received in Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called by, which is the name Christian. Now, this is unusual for Paul. He, he does this in his other letters, too. What he often does is he builds this whole treatise in his letters of what God has done for us. He exposits all the blessings and the, the wonders of God's grace towards us in Jesus Christ. Romans is another example of that. Romans chapter 1 through 11, right? The first 11 chapters of Romans is all about what God has done through Jesus Christ for us. That, that although we're all sinners uh, and all fall short of the glory of God, Romans tells us, but God demonstrates his love for us, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans tells us, if we just confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be what? Saved. And so the first 11 chapters of Romans, and it even says in Romans that we're predestined for all this. So the first 11 chapters of Romans is all that God has done for us. And then chapter 12, just like in our scripture this morning, we have a therefore statement. And then Paul says, therefore, because God's done all this for you, Christian. Therefore, therefore, I beseech you, it says in Romans chapter 12, 1, he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices, acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual service of worship. And then he says this, and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see the bridge being crossed there in Romans? It goes from 11 chapters of what God has done to the remaining chapters in Romans. So don't be conformed to this world. Be living in holy sacrifices. Colossians the same way. Same thing in Colossians. First couple chapters in Colossians, we see chapters 1 and 2, all that Christ has done and how he holds all things together. All things have been created by him and for him. He holds us all together. Holds the whole creation together. By the way, he holds me together. He holds you together, too, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, right? So all that Christ has done, Colossians 1 and 2, and then a, a therefore statement again where it talks about now because of what Christ has done. Now, you do this. You live in this way. You let God's word, you know, be a part of your heart. 
let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, Colossians chapter 3 says. And then it talks about how to, how to be spirit-filled and how to have a good work ethic and how to be representatives of Christ in this world. Now, why does Paul always start talking about what God has done before he talks about what we're supposed to do? Why? Because God doesn't want us to be coerced into living for him. He doesn't want us to be forced pushed into rules and regulations and legalism. What God, through his word, word wants to do is he wants to show us the greatness of what he's done for us so that out of gratitude for his grace, we want to do it for him. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because God's grace has been so magnificent towards us. We want to do it for him because of what he's done for us. Amen? So that's the background on our scripture this morning. And parents, by the way, good principle in here, parents. Same thing, not only our Heavenly Father wants us to see the greatness of His grace and love and what He's done for us so that we now could, out of gratitude, do for Him. Uh, the same thing, parents. You want to, be, want to be parents that have kids that obey you, that are obedient to you, that want to do what you want them to do? You know where it starts? It starts in you loving them. You showing grace towards them and even mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. I raised four teenagers, they're out of the house, they're all doing great now, but man, we had some mercy. And the better my relationship with my kids were as they are growing up, the more it was easy for them to follow my leadership as a parent and to be obedient. You see that? And so if you want more obedience in your kids and more a leadership ability into their lives, show them love, mercy. Overflow grace towards them. James Dawson wrote a great book called Dare to Discipline, and in that book he said this, hey, rules without relationship lead to rebellion. But I tell you, a relationship and love and grace towards those that are under your leadership, that, that leads to obedience. Hey, doesn't it? Amen? Does it make sense? All right, church, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Let's get into our scripture this morning. And hey, since you stood up just a minute ago, that's, we only got six verses today. I'm doing a condensed version. You know, my son from Charlotte called me last night and said, hey, the Masters got switched to this morning, so Dad, you better keep your sermon short so everybody go home and see the end of the Masters. So we're, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to keep it short. Actually, I went kind of long in the first service. But anyways, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. If you're there, say amen. All right, let's all stand up. Since it's only six verses, let's all stand up and read it together. And then, and then we'll meditate on it and study it after we read it together. Boy, I'm keeping you active today, huh? Next thing I do is Simon says. Simon says, do this. Simon says, no. No, just stand. That's all I'm asking. Ephesians chapter 4. You got it, church? All right, it's on the screen. If you don't have my version, which is the most accurate version, it's the version you should have. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 6. NASB. If you have your Bibles, NASB, read it. Otherwise, read the screen. It says this. Therefore... I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Read it with me, church. A manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Boy, that sounded good, church. Well done. Well done. Maybe see it. Now, first word in our, our scripture this morning, therefore. Biblical scholars tell us that whenever you see a therefore, what are you supposed to ask? What's a therefore, right? And this scripture is, is starting by saying, therefore, because again, Paul's referring back to the first, first three chapters of Ephesians, saying, since God has done all this Christian for you, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul himself, says this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called in Christ Jesus. Now, interesting. What it's saying there is, as Christians, after we experience God's grace, we're supposed to walk. You know, even after Ephesians 2, 8 9, remember it said, for by grace you've been saved through faith. After that scripture and being saved by grace through faith, the next verse is we are his workmanship created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should walk in good works. To get to heaven, no. Good works will never get to heaven. Wages of our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
but our response to grace. Therefore, because God's done all these riches for us and made us rich in Christ, because therefore, therefore, walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. We're supposed to be walkie-talkies. We walk first and then talk later. You know what I'm talking about? The world's watching. They're trying to see whether you have a walk that backs up your talk. We're not just supposed to talk the talk. We're supposed to walk the walk. And why is that important? Because we have a calling. We got a name. And our name is Christian. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been called a Christian. Now, what does the word Christian mean? Well, you go back to the original language for Christian, it means literally one who belongs to Christ. Uh, it could also be translated a Christ follower, or even a little Christ. Now, that's a little dangerous because we don't have, we're not a little Christ, we're just sinners saved by God's grace. But literally, it means one who belongs to Christ. We belong to him. We belong to him to such a point that we bear his name. We bear the name of Christ. And so we got a great responsibility in bearing the name of Christ, one who belongs to him, to be, as Peter said, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we might declare the excellencies of one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our job. Part of the job description of the Christian is to be a witness. Amen? Each one reach one. But it says in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witness. It doesn't say, talk my witness, be, be my witness. And again, we're jars of clay, we all have imperfections, we all have idiosyncrasies, we all, hey, we all have issues. And if you don't think you have uh, faults or sins or idiosyncrasies or issues, that's an issue in itself. It is. You're in denial. All men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, amen? But we're to walk in a matter worthy of the calling the name that we bear, the name, the name is Christ. The name is Christ. My name is John G. Oppie III. I'm named after my grandpa. My grandpa was something. He was something. He, he, he came over here on a boat to Ellis Island with his, with his mom to track down his dad who came a year earlier to work in the Chicago Stockyards. And, and my, and my, my great-grandma, I guess, uh, got tired of waiting to get word back from him. And he was so, he was so, my, my great-grandpa was so embarrassed that he went from being a businessman in Holland to working in the Chicago Stockyards. He didn't, he didn't communicate with his wife for a year. She finally got on a boat with my grandpa, who was a seven-year-old, by herself, and came to Ellis Island and then tracked him down to Chicago, and they were family again. Amazing. But then my, my grandpa, because of the financial stress and everything else like that, he had to quit school when he was in seventh grade. He never graduated from, from junior high. And he, was, he started working with his dad in Chicago Stockyards in seventh grade. And he was something. But he became a Christian. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. And God blessed my grandpa, the one I'm named after. He started, he, he, started, uh, he got his real estate license even without graduation from, seventh, from eighth grade. And then he got involved in the 50s of subdivisions in Chicago suburbs. God blessed him. Became a very wealthy man. He helped Tiny and I start our first two churches in San Diego and Wisconsin. He financed a lot of, a, 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 he really helped us. But I remember my grandpa, when I was growing up, I, there was a big pressure on me because I represented his name. It was a good pressure, positive peer pressure for my grandpa. He made it clear, hey, he even helped nickname me, my family nickname. Those of you who know my family, what is it? Do you remember? Chip, because Grandpa Hoppy said I'm supposed to be a chip off the old block. And I remember one time, right before I got saved, the year before I got saved, I was running wild. I was not representing the name John Hoppy very well. It's lost as a rock, 16-year-old. My parents had got, I got my driver's license, and they just let me go. I remember one time, Grandpa Hoppy was coming through town on a Friday night, and I was gone. And he was staying with my parents in, in Chicago, and I was running wild. I got, I got in that, that Friday night at 3 o'clock in the morning, and guess who was waiting up for me? Grandpa Hoppy. He heard me come in, and he just said, good night, Chip, and we're going to talk in the morning. Oh, boy. And I'll never forget the talk we had. We went for a walk, and it was a walkie-talkie. And Grandpa said, you know, you got my name. And let me tell you something, Chip. Nothing good happens after midnight. 
And I said, ooh, I just heard Heidi say amen over there. And he was right. I was running wild. And it was such a comfort to me a year later when I got saved and Grandpa would visit again. And instead of going out partying, I was going to Bible studies. And I got saved through Young Life. And he came to the Young Life fundraising banquet. I'll never forget that because he wanted to hear me because I was given the testimony for that banquet of how Christ had changed my life. And I'll never forget because Grandpa Appu was just sitting out there in the banquet, ear to ear smiles, and then he wrote a big check to Young Life. He said he got, he said he got fundraising letters for years after that. <laughs> but he made it clear to me I had a name to represent. I should take that seriously. And now that I'm a Christian, a Christ follower, I think about that. I got a name to represent. And the name is Jesus. And I can be careful how I represent the name of Jesus in my walk, in my conduct. It needs to be in a manner worthy of the calling by which I've been called. And you do too. Amen? I, James Kennedy, the founder of the uh, church down in Fort Lauderdale, has passed away now. But I went to his evangelism explosion back in the day when James Kennedy was still alive. And I'll never forget an illustration he gave us. In, in this class, this evangelism explosion class, he said it was about Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great was the, the, the emperor of Greece. He brought the whole Grecian empire to the whole world. The historians tell us that Alexander the Great uh, conquered the whole known world by the time he was 30 years old. And, and after he conquered the whole world, supposedly uh, after one of the battles that the men had, one of the soldiers retreated and instead of fighting with the other soldiers, went and hid behind a rock and, and just deserted everybody. Didn't help at all. Just hiding behind a rock. And so he got arrested. This soldier got arrested. And then he got brought before Alexander the Great. Now Alexander the Great knew that many soldiers died and it was a tough battle. So he showed grace to that, that soldier at that point because they wanted him to be hung or killed for treason. And so Alexander said, nope, we're going to let you go. We're going to show you grace. But next battle... Don't even think about hiding behind a rock. Be the soldier. Fight the fight you're supposed to fight as a soldier for the Greek empire. And then he had the man come forward and he said, and, and, and son, what is your name, by the way? He was pretty timid. It's tough to even respond to it because he said, well, my name, my name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great took him by his robe, put him against the wall, he said, son, from now on, change your conduct or change your name. See his point there? You got my name. So live in a manner worthy of the name that you've been called. And Christian, 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 we have a name to represent. And so let's walk in a manner worthy of the conduct by which we've been called in the name being Jesus. Now, does that mean we're going to be perfect? Good luck with that. Does it mean you're not going to make mistakes? Good luck with that. Does it mean you're not going to have issues at time? Good luck with that. Ain't going to happen. But it's about pursuing, pursuing Christ-likeness. Seeking, Matthew 6, 33 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. We're in a life that's running the race in such a way to win. We're going forward with spiritual disciplines, so we're not embarrassing the name of Christ. We're promoting the name of Christ and being a witness for Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, so we got that point? I stepped on some toes with that a little bit, didn't I? Stepped on my own toes, too, a little bit, okay? Actually, the Word of God's doing it, okay? So, First thing we see, walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. And then he gives a list now of how to walk. Interesting, the first thing on the list, what is it? Go to verse 2. How are we to walk? Humility. Ooh, that's tough in our culture. Our culture prides itself in its pride. We have all kinds of stuff going on in our world today. That's not only the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, but the boastful pride of life. That's a part of our culture. And our culture teaches us, and our world around teaches us, you've got to look out for number one. You've got to put yourself and your own interests first. Now, now, question. When it says walk in humility, does that mean you're supposed to think bad about yourself? Does that mean you're supposed to just be down on yourself all the time? Does that mean you're supposed to just trudge through life thinking of how much of a miserable person you are? No, no, no. Andrew Murray puts it well. Here's what humility, according to Andrew Murray, is. A Andrew Murray says humility is not thinking bad about yourself. It's not thinking about yourself at all. 
Humility, according to Philippians chapter 2, demonstrated by Jesus Christ, is putting others and, and God first. Look at Philippians chapter 2 there. It says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the very nature of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance of man, he what? What does it say? Humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's what humility, true humility is. It's, it's the world's not about you anymore. It's not about being self-centered. It's about being God-centered and Christ-centered and other-centered. That's what it is. That's true humility. It's not thinking bad about yourself. It's just not thinking about yourself at all. And that's why Christ said, if any man wants to follow me, he must take up his cross daily, deny himself, and follow Christ as you execute yourself. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's true humility. It's crucifying self and putting Christ first. Let him live in you and through you. Remember when I first got saved, I was lost, self-centered. The whole world, I thought, revolved around me. Then I came to Christ. And the Holy Spirit came into my life. It started changing me. About six months into my salvation, I remember doing some self-analysis and thinking, wow, this Christianity thing really does change you because before, six months ago, I didn't care about anybody. Now I actually care about people. I, I just wanted to do what my dad did, do be in the real estate business, make a whole lot of money, and just spend it all on myself. And then God started calling me into ministry and into service and doing Bible studies and church. Humility. Humility is not thinking, again, bad about yourself. It's not thinking about yourself. It's thinking about Christ and others. And you say, well, you know, that can't be happy if it's all about just other people and Jesus. Yes, you can. The most happiness you'll have is when you put Jesus first, the cross stick, Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. You want true joy? Jesus first, others second, yourself last. That's why Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you better lose it. I watched one of my favorite movies this week with Heidi. It goes, I'm dating myself. This movie goes back to 1971. And it's a movie about uh, two guys that played NFL football, Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers. Gail Sayers at the time was the best running back in the NFL. They, they had a nickname for him. His nickname was Magic. He was just magical. Brian Piccolo was one of the top running backs in the country in college at the time, but he got drafted, and they both ended up on the same team. And Brian Piccolo went from being a star at Wake Forest to be a second-string bench warmer because Gail Sayers was in, in the position before him. And in the movie, if you watch Brian's song, is the name of the movie, it goes back to 1971. It's a documentary kind of movie on what happened. It actually was a movie based on Gail Sayers' book called I Am Third because Gail Sayers was a Christian. He wrote a book called I Am Third, God First, uh, other second, myself last. And the whole movie, Brian's Song, is about that. But it's, it's a fascinating movie about humility. It really is. I was just thinking about this point as I was studying this book, uh, study, uh, as I was watching the movie, I was thinking about this point of humility as I was watching the movie this week. Because listen, Gail Sayers, in 1969, he totally, I don't know if it was ACL or whatever, but he just messed up his knee right at the beginning of the season to the point that he had to take a whole year off from NFL football. And after he totally demolished his knee, the first thing Brian Piccolo did was get the first string position, and he started excelling in that position. And you know what the second thing Brian Piccolo did after he got the position and started excelling and becoming you know, the, the, the star he wanted to be? He went to Gail Sarah's basement, and he put together a weight bench, and he said, I'm going to personally train you so you can get back to 100% so I, I don't get this position because you're out. And he, then he, and Gail says, well, he started, he was just down on himself and everything else. And, and Brian Pickle said, no, 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 we're not, we're not, I'm not leaving this basement and I'm not going to stop training you until you're 100%. Now, listen, I did some study on this. 5% of NFL running backs with the injury that Gail Sayers had, only 5% made it back to the NFL in 1969. 95% chance he wouldn't make it at all. And you know what happened? Because of their partnership and because of the humility of Brian Pickle saying, I'm thinking of you before me, within a year, he was back in the NFL, and he had a stellar career after that. 
But after he got back to that position, it was kind of cool, too. We see in the movie, too. What happened was, was Brian Piccolo then got the fullback position, and they were running backs together in the same starting uh, lineup, which is awesome. But then right after that, here's what happened. Brian Piccolo got cancer, and it was terminal cancer. And then right when they found out Brian Piccolo got cancer in the movie, what happened was this, was Gail Sears got the award for courage for a year of comeback, and he got the George Harris Award for courage, and then he gives a speech. I'm going to show you the speech from the movie. If you want to see a great movie, watch this movie sometime. It's a great, great movie on humility, the first point. This is his speech as he was receiving the George Harris Award about his friend, Brian Piccolo, and the humility. Watch the humility he shows here. I'd say a few words about a guy I know, a friend of mine. His name is Brian Piccolo. And he has the heart of a giant. And that rare form of courage which allows him to kid himself and his opponent. Cancer. He has a mental attitude which makes me proud to have a friend who spells out courage 24 hours a day, every day of his life. Now you flatter me by giving me this award. But I say to you here now, Brian Piccolo is the man of courage who should receive the George S. Hallis Award. mind tonight and Brian Piccolo's tomorrow. I love Brian Piccolo and I'd like all of you to love him too. And tonight Hit your knees. Please ask God to love him. You see the connection there between love and humility? Humility is putting others before yourself. And that's, that's the essence of true love too, isn't it? When you don't think of yourself, you think of others first and yourself last. And that's, that's, that's our conduct as Christians because love and humility like that will bear the name of Christ very well. Amen? And by the way, that's Jesus. Jesus said this, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you shall find rest for your soul. That's God declaring humility. And we're told in Micah 6.8, he has shown the old man what is good, what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Amen? Now, it doesn't get any easier. What's the next thing that we're supposed to have in our conduct? After humility, gentleness. I struggle with that one. Because I think of gentleness sometimes being a doormat. Just, oh, gentle, gentle, gentle. Actually, the King James translates this meekness. That's even worse. The last thing I want to be is meek, because I think meek is weak. But you know what? Meekness does not equal weakness. Gentleness, the word there actually translated is this, strength under a master's control. It was used for stallions that were tamed by a master. These stallions that were strong and robust and just muscular were gentle because they had been tamed by a master and they could be led to do great things through the taming and the mastery of that master. You know what? That's what God wants for us. He wants our temperament, our passions, our strength under Jesus' control so he could guide us with his reins to do great things for his kingdom. And that's why we need to be gentle. And it's not easy. It's not easy for me. I mean, tell you, when someone's cut me off in traffic, the last thing I want to do is be gentle. You know, there's all kinds of stuff we face all the time where the last thing we want to do is be gentle. But again, think of Jesus. Gentle. 
Jesus was gentle. How do, what do I mean by that? The greatest example of gentleness in all of Scripture, as far as I'm concerned, is Jesus right before he's arrested, and then his arrest, inquisition, and cross. Think about Jesus. I mean, he had strength beyond any other human being that ever lived. Jesus told Peter, I could put it into this whole cross thing, because Peter's trying to talk him out of it. I could put it into this thing. I could call 12 legions of angels and stop it right now. He had, listen, a, a legion is at least 4,000 soldiers. What he's saying there is he had, the, he had at his fingertips 48,000 angels that could just disintegrate any kind of opposition he had. Actually, in the, book, in the Old Testament, we see that one angel killed, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that were warriors. One angel killed 185,000 soldiers. Jesus said, I could call 48,000 of those. And then we see uh, in the book of Luke, I believe it was, you see these soldiers just mistreating Jesus. They, would, they gave him a purple robe out of mockery because purple is for royalty. And then they put, they put a bag over his head. And after, after, when they put the bag over his head, they, they, they started sucker punching him through the bag and said this, hey, if you say you're a prophet, prophesy who's hitting you right now. Good thing I wasn't Jesus in that situation. I would use some of those angels right there to dis disintegrate those guys. Either that or when I rose from the grave, if I was Jesus, the first thing I'd do is I'd go to the soldiers' bedrooms and smack them. Say, hey, I'm back. That's the first thing I would do. And I'd say, okay, you hit me pretty good. I would watch this. Bam! But Jesus didn't do that, did he? And then they scourged him. 39 lashes. Metal creaming his back and just making his back hamburger. And, and the scourging at that time was interrogation. What that meant is this. It meant that they would scourge you harder and harder until you confessed your crime. Jesus had no crime to confess. And they put him on a cross. They mocked him some more. Unbelievable. And Jesus' strength was under control. Under the control of his father. Why? Because the father made it clear to him, if man's going to be saved, the only way man's going to be saved is through you dying for man upon the cross and taking the pain and the torture of the cross so that'll pay for man's sin. So Jesus willingly, it said it even in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Amazing. See gentleness in that? Amazing. Gentleness. His strength was under the Father's control. We need the same thing. We need the same thing. We need to be humble. We need to be gentle. When I was in college, I had a, a good friend He's one of the biggest human beings I've ever been a friend of. His name was Big Ernie. Big Ernie was scary, big. I mean, that guy was, guy, guy was a mechanic. And so he, he was actually a mechanical engineer at Universal Oil with me. But I went to high school with him. And he always had grease under his fingertips. And he had this kind of like, kind of scraggly hair and eyes that looked like he's, you know, he was a scary guy. But I liked him. I liked the fact that he was 6'8", 285 pounds. Strong as that. He was a mechanic, so he was strong as an ox. And I started hanging out with him in college a little bit. He was lost at the time, and I was leading a Bible study in our dormitory. So I made him a project. And I said, I'm going to start hanging out with this guy. I'm going to go to the gym with him, and then I'm going to hopefully lead him to Christ. You know what happened? I got in the gym with him, and within a month, he never lifted weights. He was just a mechanic. Within a month, he's, he's bench pressing like 300 pounds. This guy was Big Ernie. People asked him, uh, his nickname was Big Ernie. And, and people asked him, why do they call you Big Ernie? He says, because I tell him to. This guy was, he was a giant, muscular, just uh, kind of guy. And I remember one time we were going to Florida together, the first spring break, freshman year. We were going to Florida together. before he got saved. We had a couple other Christian friends go, so we went down where my grandparents had in Sarasota, Florida. And we were making this long track back to the University of Illinois after visiting my grandparents in Sarasota and stuff. And I made this mistake of getting in, and I was in the passenger, I was riding shotgun, and Ernie was driving his car. And I made the mistake of joking too much with Ernie to the point that he was ribbing me and I was ribbing him. And finally, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I gave him a Charlie horse. You know what a Charlie horse is? While he's driving, I gave him a Charlie horse right here like that. And I got him good. I, I know how to get good Charlie horses. And so I, get, I gave him a Charlie horse like that. And he stayed calm and everything else until we got out of the car at the gas station. He said, Hoppy, get over here. I said, yeah, already what? He reared back and he punched me. And it felt like my whole inside shattered. 
I mean, I've never been punched like that before. I mean, my, my, I thought my whole side was shattered. This was Big Ernie. And then a month or two after that, I, I didn't, I knew I was, I knew I was deserving it, but so I didn't defriend him. But um, about a month after that, I was sitting in my dorm bedroom with him, and we were sitting in the dorm, and he broke, and he came to Christ. Big Ernie became a Christian. And I'll never forget the transition in Big Ernie's life. He went from this gregarious mechanic that would, if you got wrong to man, you were in big trouble, to a guy that we call him the gentle giant. We called him, you know, the big teddy bear after that. Because God got a hold of his heart, and he became gentle. See how that works? Strength under God's what? Control. That's gentle. So humility, gentleness, also, we're told here, we're supposed to, after humility and gentleness, go back to scriptures. It says, this gets harder with me. With patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. It's part of walking in manner worthy of the calling. We're patient. King James Version translates that long-suffering. We're to bear with one another in love in our patience with other people. One of the Greek translations for patience there is long-suffering. King James translates it that way. But one commentary translates that uh, patience, long-suffering towards aggravating people. And that's why we're supposed to show forbearance to one another in love, right? I tell you what, we all know some aggravating people. Do you know some aggravating people? Don't pretend like you don't. Hey, are you sitting next to an uh, aggravating person right now? Don't answer that question. But if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have as Christians, bearing the name of Christ, we need to be patient. Why? Because God's patient with us. You've got to remember, God's omnipresent, om- omnipotent, and he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Well, you know what that means? He sees every aggravating thing you do, and he's patient with you. And he's forbearing towards you in love. Amen? Why should we be patient towards other people? Because God's patient with you. And I'll tell you what, sometimes people are aggravating because they got stuff going on. They got issues. They got hurts. They got pain. They got struggles. And they need your patience. And they need you to forbear with them in love. I think of my willow tree in my house that I grew up in Oak Park, Illinois. We had this huge willow tree in the backyard. And I remember I was, it was a windy city. We'd have some pretty good storms. We'd even have tornadoes. I remember retreating to our basement with a little black and white TV because tornado warnings would come through all the time. I remember looking out our back window sometimes with the willow tree. And that willow tree, I tell you, was amazing because it would, this big willow tree, it would bend with these storms to the point it was like almost bending halfway down to the ground, but it would never bust. I thought of the willow tree when I thought about that we're supposed to bear one another, bear with one another in tolerance and love. We're supposed to bear with one another, just like the willow tree. The Bible says God's love is such that it, it bears all things, believes all things, endures all things, and God's love never fails. And that's how we're supposed to love each other also, right? Spouses, can you say that amen about your spouse? Hey, patience, long-suffering, even when they're aggravating. And you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called as Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. Um, let's go on now. After tolerance and bearing one another love, last thing on our list, we'll close with this this morning. Uh, we're supposed to look at verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of what? Peace. The last way we walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have as Christians is unity. Unity. Why is that important as Christians? To be united, to be one? Because Jesus prayed three times in his prayer for the church for us and for the future church. He prayed three times, Father, let them be one as you and I are one. Father, let them be perfected in unity just as we're perfected in unity. And why did Jesus pray three times in one prayer for the church to be united? Because a house divided cannot stand. And the devil's goal in any church, in any ministry, is division because he knows division will paralyze any effect the gospel has and will be a bad witness for Jesus Christ. When, when people out in the world see churches and Christians being negative with each other and fighting each other and acting like the Hatfields and McCoys in church, you know what the, you know what the world says in response to that? I got enough fighting at home. I got enough fighting at work. Why would I want to go to church and be a part of that? Right? 
Jesus said, you will know me, they will know you're my disciples. They will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And here's how we deal. Here's how we're diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice it's going to take some work. It's going to take some diligence to stay united with brothers and sisters in Christ. How can we be diligent to do that? Here's the suggestion I give you as the pastor of this church. Whenever anybody says anything negative about a brother or sister in Christ in this church, you direct them back to that brother and sister in Christ and you don't entertain the accusations or the negativity or the divisiveness towards that other brother and sister in Christ. That's why we're told in Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only that which is good for building others up according to the need of the moment that it might give grace to those who hear it. Now, we often use that verse for swearing. It could be applied for swearing, but it's also applied towards gossip and negativity and divisiveness. And if someone is a, a Christ follower, we should only be bringing words about others that build them up and give grace to them. And so here's what happens. Someone's divisive, negative, spewing out stuff about it, someone within the family of Christ. Here's what we do. We tell them, listen, Matthew 18, 15 says, you're supposed to go to a brother if you have an issue with them and deal with it in private. I don't want to hear anymore. Go to that brother and deal with it in private. And if you do that, maybe you'll win that brother and you'll have peace again with that brother. Or you could give them other scriptures, a slew of scriptures on this. Let me give you a few more. You could tell that brother that's being negative or divisive, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Or you could tell that brother or sister, Hebrews 12, 14 to 15, that says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many may be defiled. And then also, I encourage you to tell them Romans 12, 18, that says, hey, brother, if possible, as far as it depends on you, you're supposed to be at peace with all men. Go, go make peace. Get this thing right with this, brother and sister in Christ. Don't bring the garbage to me and the divisiveness to me. Go make peace with that brother and sister in Christ. And then James 3, 16 and 18, you can share with them too. It says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil thing, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then what? peaceable, here's our other word too, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who what? Make peace. Jesus was the prince of peace. We have peace with God because of Jesus. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If he's the prince of peace, what kind of people are we supposed to be? People of peace. That's rendering a name that's worthy of the calling by what you have. Is when we're at peace. We're at peace. You know, there's more, I was studying this this week, there's more churches in the United States that are being closed on a daily basis than started. There's more churches that are going out of business having to close their doors than churches that are being planted here in our country, which is a Christian country foundation country. Our, 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 our beginning of a country was with the Puritans that were Christians. There's more churches being closed now than started in our country. Why? It's this last issue. Too much fighting going on in churches. Too much disunity. Too much divisiveness and negativity. And I tell you what, you get into that mode, God will shut you down as a ministry. And one of the things I'm so grateful for with what we have here at Calvary Chapel Lexington is there's a beautiful unity and oneness in this, in this body. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, and we have that blessedness here in this body, but we need to protect it. We need to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Why should we be united? Well, it tells us right back there in Ephesians why we our source for unity. Because verse 4 says, there is one body... That's one church. We're part of the same body, the body of Christ. We have one spirit. We have the same Holy Spirit, uh, a part of our lives, res- resident in our lives. Just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. We have the same hope. Christ in us is the hope of, hope of glory. We have one Lord. Jesus is our Lord. Binds us together in unity. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all and through all and in all. Now I have a pet peeve. I got a few pet peeves, but one of my pet peeves is when I hear Christians say about a brother or sister in Christ, I don't have anything in common with them. They don't like the same sports I like. They don't like the same food I like. They don't have, like the same uh, whatever. I don't have anything in common with them. Really? 
you're a Christian. You're part of the same body. You're part of the same family. You're part of the same hope. You're part of the same calling. You're part of the same name, the name of Jesus. You got the whole, same Holy Spirit living in you as, as that other believer in Christ. You got the same truth, the Word of God. There's so much we have in common with each other as brothers and sisters of Christ. But the main thing we have in common is God, through Jesus Christ, has adopted us into his family. We're brothers and sisters. And so you know what? We should have each other's backs. We should have a loyalty to one another, an honoring of one another, a loving of one another, a protecting of one another, and the reputation of one another. And that's how we can be diligent to preserve the unity of the bond of peace. You know, I'm, my sister Heather, my older sister Heather, I only have one sibling in my family, um, we are so different. Sometimes I think, I, are we part of the same gene pool here? What's going on? And we have such differences in beliefs and paradigms and, and what, even political stuff. I cringe sometimes to, watch, to look at her Facebook. Because we, we start on the same page. But you know what? To this day, my older sister's got my back. I mean, when I was going through some of the surgeries and everything else, she was on a daily basis texting me, how are you doing? How, what's going on? Give me a no. What's going on? And she's got my back. I remember when we went through my mom dying, or my, uh, my, my dad dying, and then a few years later, my dad, my mom dying. Man, we had each other's backs to the point that when we had to do all that estate stuff, I, I'd heard the nightmares of some families that they've, all these siblings fight about the estate and they're at each other's throats and all that stuff. Heather and I never had any of that stuff. We just put everything down the middle, whatever. You take that, I'll take this, we're done. And I, I'd never had a single fight with Heather about the estate. You know why? She's my sister. I'm her brother. We had a unity in the whole thing. No arguments whatsoever. You know what? That's how we should be as Christians. You're my sister. You're my brother. We're part of the same family. So let's be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's protect that. Let's work hard at it. And what else? Let's live what we say we believe. Let's walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we were called. And that's the name of Christ. Let's be people that have humility, putting Christ first, others second, ourselves last. We want more joy, Jesus, others, and then yourself. Let's, have, let's be gentle. Ooh, that's tough, but let's be gentle. Let's have our strength under the master's control so he can do great things in us and through us. Amen? Let's be people, too, that not only have this going on with gentleness and humility, but let's also be people that, oh, hmm, patient, long-suffering with aggravating people and bearing with one another and bearing with those people in love. Some of the people that God's called you to minister to are some of the people that are going to bug you the most. But let's be patient with them. Amen? And lastly, let's be diligent in protecting this unity that we're blessed with here at Calvary Chapel. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful unity. And you know what? I think about these characteristics of walking in a manner worthy of the calling. And I was thinking this week about it, and I was thinking about two of my heroes. Two of my heroes. Two of, I look at them as my spiritual papas in some ways because I just regard them so highly. Billy Graham and Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel. And I think about both those guys, and they lived out this walk. So much so, when I think of Billy Graham and I think of Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, I think of all these ingredients. I think of humility. Oh, both those guys were so humble. Billy Graham was asked by Larry King one time, hey, what are you going to ask God? Well, first question when you get to heaven, Billy, uh, Billy Graham said, why me? Why did you, you, you take a farm boy from Charlotte, North Carolina that reached millions of people with the gospel of Jesus? Why me? Humble. I think of gentleness. I think of both Chuck Smith and Billy Graham, both those guys, they just had this gentle spirit. They had their strength under God's control. I think of both those guys also. I think of this whole thing of, of, of being patient. I saw Pastor Chuck live. I was at his pastor conferences, and I saw such patience in that man with all these pastors that were constantly thronging him and trying to get his attention. He was so patient, so patient. And I, I saw both those guys too, Billy Graham and Chuck Smith, having, having a diligence to have unity within the body of Christ. And I was thinking about that this week. Why did God choose those guys to have such a worldwide impact? I mean, Billy Graham preached to more human beings that led more people to Christ than any other human being that's ever lived. 
Do you know that? He preached to millions and led millions uh, to Christ through the gospel. Amazing. Chuck Smith started this movement at Calvary Chapel, and there's over 1,200 churches, Calvary Chapels, around the world now, and there's Bible colleges on every continent just about that are training pastors to go with the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why did, why did God use Billy Graham and Chuck Smith with such worldwide impact? You know, I, you listen to both those guys' sermons, and they were good, but they weren't great. A lot of their sermons were just, you know, good. Why did God use them so powerfully? Because they walked in a manner worthy of the calling of the name of Christ. Both those guys were in the ministry for 60 plus years. And there was never any dirt found. Any, and there was microscopes and te telescopes and reporters that were just trying to find dirt on both Billy Graham and Chuck Smith for 60 years. And you know what? They never reported anything in the news, never in the newspaper about dirt on either of those. You know why they didn't report anything about dirt on either of those guys? You know why? Why? Because there wasn't any dirt. There wasn't any scandal. There wasn't anything that was not worthy of the calling by which they've been called as Christians. Hey, let's do the same. Amen, church? Let's walk. Let's be walkie-talkies. Let's walk first and talk later. Let's be, those, let's be a witness for Jesus Christ. You should, you should receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, comes upon you, and you shall be a witness for Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that your word trains us in righteousness, Lord. And Father, I pray that you help us in all these areas. God, we all fall short in walking in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've given us, Lord. We all have mistakes and idiosyncrasies and faults. But God, you called us to reach forward, to press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, work in our lives in this area of humility. Help us, to, help us to be putting you and others first and ourselves last. Help us to be seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness so you get out all these things onto us. Help us not to be a self-centered people, but a Christ-centered and other-centered people. Help us to be gentle, Lord. Help us to have our strength under your control, the, the master's control. Help us to be patient, Lord, forbearing with one another in love, Lord. Help us to have a long-suffering, even with aggravating people, and minister to those people, Lord. And Father, I pray too that you help us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Lord. Help us to protect that within our fellowship with one another. Help us to have each other's backs, Lord. Help us to have a loyalty to one another because we're a part of the same family, and that's the family of Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, forgive us for those times where we're divisive and negative towards family members, members within the body of Christ. And Lord, help us to practice what we learned this morning of, of being people that don't let unwholesome words proceed from our mouth, but only those words with that which are good for building others up according to the need of the moment, that I might give grace to those who hear it, Lord. Father, thank you so much. You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you so much, Lord, that you've enabled us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live out these truths that we're learning this morning. Help us to, in our arenas of influence, Help us to be witnesses. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called, Lord. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name.